0: Welcome to the Rich and Regular podcast presented by Success, where we explore life at the intersection of money. I'm Julian.
1: And I'm Kirsten. And today's episode is a little different. It's actually a replay of a live podcast recording that we did in partnership with Morningstar at their annual investor conference a couple of weeks ago.
0: Yeah, it was in Chicago. Uh, Morningstar is headquartered in Chicago. And we had the distinct pleasure of traveling to Chicago, meeting with a bunch of advisors and a bunch of people in the financial services industry. It was really, really cool. Uh, We were asked to do a couple of things, but I think the highlight of it all was to record a podcast episode live in front of, of, I would say maybe about 50 people. Yeah. Yeah. It was really exciting. We were right there on the trade show floor. There were tons of people watching while we were recording. It was kind of Odd, different, (laughs) uncomfortable, but cool at the same time. Yeah, I
1: think the hardest part was because we knew it was a podcast, but there was also a live audience. We didn't know what voice to use. So you may hear us like presenting at certain parts of the the episode versus just talking to y'all like we normally do because there were people in front of us. But I want to go back to like the conference because I think it's important to set the tone of who attends this type of conference. This is a conference that is for financial advisors and for institutional investors. So you and me, the regular Joe Schmoes, we're retail investors. We're on the consumer end of things. The people who are at this conference and the companies that were at this conference are people who invest on your behalf. So think about like your 401k provider or the holder of your pension, if you're a teacher or a firefighter or your financial advisor. So just your everyday financial advisor. And there were two themes of the conference. One was meeting the moment, which is just recognizing that we're in unprecedented times. And then the other one was this evolving investor. So this idea that yesterday's investor who could expect a very linear life path and a very simple investing strategy is kind of going away. That is, sounds morbid, but is fading. And there's this emergence of a new, evolving investor who wants different things for their family and for their portfolio.
0: Yeah. Now, those things are not really our wheelhouse, but what they asked us to do was to offer up a perspective for the advisors specifically around what's changed or what's changing as it relates to family. So you guys know we're a family. You guys are kind of part of our podcast family, but we do spend a lot of time talking to people who are representing or thinking about their families. And we took it upon ourselves to do quite a bit of research. So we were diving into white papers and Pew Research and all kinds of studies to see what's changing in the family dynamics or what's sort of different with respect to the modern family and what the implications might be for financial advisors. So again, the audience, when we were recording it, was financial advisors, but the content, the conversation, these insights, I think, are relevant for just about anyone, but especially people who are looking to make financial decisions or are in the process of trying to shape their family's financial future. And so a couple of things uh, before we go ahead and share that episode with you, I'll just give you a little bit of a debrief of what it was about, but obviously we won't share all of the details. You'll have to listen a little bit more to get that. We dived into probably the most uncomfortable aspect of family, and it's something that we've been wanting to talk about for quite some time. We dove into religion. Like right out the gate, we sort of ripped the bandaid off and we dove right into religion, how that is shaping the way that people think and how that's impacting families. Secondly, we dived into how people are learning about money and specifically all of the changes that are happening in the media landscape because that is a very important lever in terms of how people are introduced to money and financial topics. And then third, we dove into diversity, especially women, uh, and all of the changes that are happening in terms of women becoming breadwinners and how that's shaping essentially the family wallet or purse, if you will, for a lot of families. And again, all of those things have implications for the people that are serving you, listeners, your financial advisors. But I think it's relevant for just about anyone who just wants to know and have fresh perspective on how they should be thinking about money and how things have changed just in the last 10 to 25 years.
1: Yeah, so you're probably not going to find the hands-on, immediately actionable things that we talk about on a weekly basis, but it does provide a glimpse into some of the thought leadership that we do outside of this podcast, and it may just give you something interesting to talk about at dinner tonight. So enjoy, buckle up, listen up, and let us know what your thoughts are.
0: All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Morningstar Investment Conference. I'm Julian Saunders. This is Kirsten Saunders. If you don't know who we are, we're a lot of things. We are authors, we're speakers, we are multimedia creators in the personal finance world. Uh, But today we're really going to focus our time and our energy on just one of the things that we do, which is podcasting. We have our own podcast, which is called the Rich and Regular Podcast. Uh, But today we're podcasting or creating an episode in collaboration with Morning stars. So welcome to everyone that's here in person. Welcome to everyone that's watching online.
1: Perfect. Hi, everyone. Like you said, I'm Kirsten, and we actually want to make the most of our time together. So we're going to jump right in. Today, we're talking about the changes to the modern family. We're going to talk about what's new, what's changed, and specifically what financial advisors and what the financial industry, financial services industry should be paying attention to. Because the last couple of days, I've walked around, I've heard a lot of the conversations that are happening. We know that you're talking about the big wealth transfer that's going to go from baby boomers to millennials and how the face of decision makers is changing. I've heard you talk about how the evolving investor invests based on their values, but we haven't really scratched the surface on what's guiding those values. And so that's what we're going to unpack today for a little while. It's a big topic, but I think we can crack it in about 30 minutes.
0: All right, let's do it.
1: All right. So I'm going to start with one of the more uncomfortable topics which is religion. So researchers have been predicting the decline of religion and more specifically Christianity for several years. And the question we have is what are the financial implications of this? And personally, I can think of several. Okay. The first is that some of the leading voices in finance are faith-based and they distribute their materials through church communities. So how does this inform relationship building and referrals? do you or should you even use your own faith as a bridge to connect with future clients? The second one is that we know that people are waiting longer to get married and they're having fewer children. And so when you factor in this sense that there isn't gonna be this huge religious obligation to do any of those things, how do you help them define a financial future that doesn't have the normal, and I'm using air quotes for those that are listening, the normal milestones that you may be used to in a lifestyle of a young person? And then you've got tithing, right? Which is a key part of Christianity. If you look at the survey and the research, only 8% of religious leaders say that it's not important at all. The other 92% of religious leaders say that tithing is essential or it's important even if it's not essential. So if people aren't tithing 10% of their income, where are they reallocating that money? It may sound insignificant, but if you do the math on the median income of people in the U.S. being $70,000, assuming a 30-year period and consistent contributions, we're talking about $200,000. Where are they putting that? What are they putting that towards something else that they may believe in?
0: Yeah, I want to talk about nuns. and, and but. When I say would talk about nuns, I don't mean N-U-N-S. I mean a new term. This is a term that is used to describe people who are uh, not affiliated with any organized religion. So it's not N-U-N. They refer to themselves as N-O-N-E, a nun or nuns. Isn't that interesting? Because they have not thought of a better way to describe themselves. None. That could make it a little <laughs> less confusing. But this is a very real thing. Let's dig into some research. So Pew Research estimates that around a third of people who are raised Christians become nuns, N-O-N-E-S, between the ages of 15 and 29, and an additional 7% become nuns later on in life. And this trend is expected to increase over time with nuns approaching or exceeding Christians by the year 2070. Now, we've been talking a lot about Christians. Obviously, that's not the only major religion here. We don't have enough time or any of the stats to dive into any of the others, but I think you can kind of get a sense of where we're going here. The question becomes, what does the world look like? What does our country look like? When the majority of people are increasingly disassociated with organized religion and starts to really shape or reshape the world as we know it. Think about it. It influences policy, certainly in terms of how we choose our presidents and our political affiliations. It's in our pledge, One Nation under God. It influences our work lives, our schedules, holiday spending. It influences how families are essentially defined, certainly in the eyes of the government, and even literally printed on our dollars. It says, in God be trust. It's literally printed on our money. So I think the work That many of us as as advisors and people who are in this space really need to do is start talking about this role and the shifts in religion, how that's going to influence how people think about money. It's a huge cultural shift. If I had to compare it to something, I think it would likely be the largest shift that I can think about since women ushered through the workforce uh, post-World War II, right? So these are some of the things that we're at least starting to think about, uh, and we would invite you all to do the same.
1: So what does this mean for advisors? I think that's really a question of where does all this belief get channeled? And this is where you start to see the justification for more customization. In the absence of a church, people are going to look for other areas of their life to reflect their beliefs. They will believe that their portfolio needs to reflect their moral compass, and your clients will be looking for more meaningful differentiation between your companies and the funds that you offer.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I would add to that that there's been, certainly in the last couple of days, so much talk about this huge wealth transfer from boomers to the millennial generation, well, I have a pretty good sense of what else is going to be transferred. And it's a new set of beliefs, right? There's going to be a huge sense of urgency for these portfolios to reflect this newfound uh, beliefs of this new generation. So that's certainly something that we should be preparing for. And to that, I would add that there's going to be the sense of accountability that advisors and the financial services industry has to align themselves with this new set of beliefs. And so we know we've Spoken quite a bit about that over the last couple of days. And so hopefully, it's a bit of homework and things that we can all start thinking about in the near future.
1: And the list of beliefs is just getting longer. It is. And you know how you find out what somebody believes? You look at who they follow. You look at who they listen to, who they get advice from, which leads us to the second insight about the modern family and how people are learning about money.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot. I think when we think about how people are learning about money in prior years, I think the natural answer would likely be their parents. Right. And I think today that's not necessarily true. According to a survey by Merrill Lynch, when asked which financial task they had the most and least confidence about, parents responded that teaching their children about finances was the least comfortable they were least confident in doing that amongst all of these other subjects and there are two reasons for this this actually comes from a separate uh source which is the new york times they actually listed four but i'm only going to talk about two the first one was that parents were uncomfortable having these conversations because they didn't want inheritance or the conversation about inheritance to rob their children of motivation i think we can wrap our heads around that the second one is that parents are just flat out anxious about the subject. They're very, very anxious about talking about money. Things are changing. And so obviously they are struggling with passing on messages, both good and bad, to their children. But I actually think there's a third reason. And I think it's the shift in the media landscape. And so at least for me, I'm I'm dating myself a little bit. I remember... When I was a child, there were these moments or these days where, I think it was Friday for us. Anybody here remember TGIF? Friday (laughs) nights, it was like family matters, full house, and you're spending time. This idea that the family was together, we were watching TV, we were sort of shared and plugged into this single source of media. And I think what's key with that, especially if you have kids, oftentimes you rely on these conversations, these scripts, these things that are happening as a social prompt to introduce the conversation. Well, if you think about how we watch TV today, that's completely changed. You might be in front of a TV, but some of us actually have a separate screen that we're looking at. It's like, I'm spending quality time with the family, but I'm really watching the game here. And my son or my daughter is spending time with the family, but they've got their own phone and they're playing games here, right? And that can be a good thing and a bad thing. But what it really does is it puts all of us in a different world where different sources of media are shaping the conversation. And as a result, you lose out essentially or especially as a parent, on these opportunities to introduce money in a way that the child might actually be comfortable
1: with. Yeah, and and very similar to religion, the source may have changed, but the desire for understanding and clarity about how the world works hasn't gone away. It's just that memes have replaced headlines in the front page of the paper. Podcasts have replaced radio. Streaming has replaced cable. And more importantly, that good financial advice that you used to only get from mom and dad Well, that's been replaced by anybody that you like, anybody that you're influenced by, from Kim Kardashian to shows like Billions and Succession. The stigma is being removed about money, and it's no longer just this private family matter that you can only talk about or learn about from your mom and dad.
0: Yeah, so the question is, what does this mean for advisors? What does this mean for the financial services industry? And I think the first thing is you need to recalibrate your media to know what's informing your client. Basically, you want to watch which your clients are watching. It's not just CNBC. It's not just Squawk Box, Shark Tank, and Jim Cramer anymore. It's also Comedy Central, believe it or not. It's HBO. It's Netflix. It's PBS. John Oliver with Last Week Tonight. Hasma Minaj, who was on The Daily Show. If you are a Netflix watcher, uh, you might know that in the last couple of weeks, a show uh, called How to Be Rich was introduced by Remy Setti. It has gone on to be one of the top 10 shows. And I can tell you, it is certainly shaping and informing the minds of our clients. We've been paying attention because he's sort of in our space. And not only has that show ranked as one of the top 10 watched shows, which is huge on, on Netflix globally just over the last two weeks, But just in the last week, if I'm not mistaken, he's earned over 100,000 followers on Instagram. You guys are going to learn a little bit more about what that means in terms of influence later on with Tori Dunlap. But it just gives you a little bit of an idea of the influence and just how easily these kinds of messages will be informing your clients.
1: Yeah, I think the other thing is to recognize that your clients aren't showing up cold and uninformed with a bunch of how-to questions anymore. Yeah. They don't just want you to be their teacher. They want you to be their partner and they've already been primed. They have, they're showing up with a rationale for what they want. And in some cases, they're also showing up with a role model who's already showed them how to get there. So you may need to revisit where your client lands in the life cycle or the customer journey while acknowledging the many influences they have beyond just their parents. And I think the third thing is that parents are going to need tools for themselves and for their kids. So think about it. If I've been investing with you for 15 years, you've seen my family grow. I no longer just need products and services for myself. I also want you to curate and vet this world of content for me. It just gives me a leg to stand on and I'm able to counterpunch when my teenager comes into the kitchen with another wild idea about how to get rich it just gives me something something to work with So if you have a book recommendation or a podcast, a board game, a video game, a reel, a TikTok that you saw, maybe even one that you made, make sure that you include it in the newsletter or in the next interaction with your clients so that they have an idea of some other form of content that they can offer their teen or their child.
0: Yeah, even in our lives, just in the last two weeks, we've done a couple of talks. One was with a group of college students at a private university in Atlanta. The other one was with an employee resource group for the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. And after both of those people, about three people came up to us, each of them asking for tools, tips, what recommendations do you have for my children? They get it, but they don't quite know how to take that message and how to convey it to their children. Okay. So we've spoken about religion. We've spoken about how people are learning Learning. about money and the shifts in the media landscape. I want to look a little bit more closely into the pocketbooks and the wallets of the modern family. So let's talk a little bit about shifts in earning. And I'm going to throw a lot of data at you here, but the headline is that the days of the one source of income per working parent per household are pretty much over. So let's start at the top and dive into secondary sources of income. So right now, 50% of Americans have side hustles and it is not just the working class or the middle class. 62% of people earning over $100,000 a year also have side hustles, right? This is obviously additional income. The second part is the purpose of that secondary income, because you might be thinking, great, more money, more opportunities to invest, more disposable income, and that's not necessarily the case as well. It also looks differently depending on the generation. Gen Z and millennials are gonna have different purposes and approaches to finding those incomes. But more importantly, I'm gonna talk about what's driving why people are finding these side hustles. Number one reason is the rise of flexible scheduling. Right? That's the number one reason, the fact that they simply have the ability and the time and the creative desire to do more than what they're doing on their primary jobs. The second one I think is a bit more obvious, and it's an attempt to fight the rising cost of living. We're seeing that especially in larger cities in the US, but we know we're seeing it and it's impacting just about everyone. The third one is one that I'm really interested in, and it's also this rise of entrepreneurial ambition. As someone who spends a lot of time in social media creating and consuming content, I know there's been almost hand in hand just as much content driving uh, people's interests in personal finance as it is around getting out there and giving birth to your new ideas, especially if it creates an income earning opportunity. But the last one is one that I know not too many people are talking about. And I'm also going to introduce a term that you may not be familiar with. I know some of us have heard the term underemployed, but there is now a rise of what is called the overemployed, not overworked, overemployed. And so what does that mean? That these are the people who are working two remote full-time jobs. I should say two or more full-time remote jobs. It goes back to that number one reason that I said, the rise of flexible scheduling. Now, the data on this is unclear. And before I even get into the data, we know several people who are doing this. I'm willing to bet and it's making someone uncomfortable right now (laughs) that there are a few people who are working multiple uh, remote full-time jobs. I know some people who've worked upwards of four full-time jobs remotely from the comfort of their homes. They rearrange a bedroom, they turn it into almost like a studio office. They've got four or five monitors to keep everything separated, different printers, different laptops, you name it. And these people are earning significantly more amount of money over a shorter period of time. And so obviously the way that they're thinking about retirement and investing is very, very different than it was in years past. Now, as I said, the data is very clear on this for good reason. A lot of people aren't willing to sign up and say, yes, I'm one of the people who are doing this, and I'd be more than willing to answer your survey. I've seen some surveys that say upwards of 89 percent of remote workers are doing this. I've seen some say as low as 30, but I think we could just call it a wash and say that it's somewhere around half, depending on who you ask.
1: All right. The second shift in income is around the rise in female women breadwinners. Over 30% of women in heterosexual marriages with dual-income households earn more than their husbands. And what's really interesting is that women tell their spouses they earn less than their IRS filings suggest. And conversely, men tell women that they earn more.
0: That's not true. (laughs) That's
1: definitely true. The data does not lie. Okay. (laughs) And it's important to note that when I talk about women as breadwinners, it actually looks different across racial lines and family structures. So if you are a black woman, you are far more likely to be a breadwinner. And if you're a black mother like me, you are even more likely to be a a breadwinner. Black mothers are breadwinners in 84% of their households.
0: Yeah, that was one of the things that I felt. Just when we started creating content, and it was one of the reasons why we wanted to have more conversations about money because it didn't feel like enough people were talking about that. Yeah. I want to move on to something that's uh, also a little interesting here. And that's that same-sex married couples have a higher rate of dual employment and a higher median household income than opposite-sex married couples. The difference there is around 13%. Now, within that group, around 50% of gay couples are married with the remaining being partnered same-sex male couples earn 25% more than same-sex female married couples. And this one I thought was really interesting is that a larger share of same-sex couples are interracial than opposite-sex married couples. And so all of these things are sort of happening at the same time. And obviously all of them have uh, an impact in terms of the way that we look at or target or think about who we're going to try to support, specifically when we're looking at household income.
1: Yeah. So when you look at what that means for advisors, it means you need to look beyond just total income. You need to look at the source and the cadence of the income, find the rhythm of their income, because it may be a better indicator of their behavior, their risk tolerance and their willingness to invest when you go deeper than just the big number. The other thing, and this is an important one, is to not to try not. Try really hard. I understand how bias works, but try really hard not to make determinations about who your clients are based on census demographic data, because that's like bringing a square to a circle fight. Right. Our realities are far more intersectional, especially when you consider the long view. If I am a college educated mom of three who is black but was in an interracial marriage for 15 years, but now I'm recently divorced and became a single mom who also owns a business, what box do you put me in? You cannot put me in a box. You have to really try to understand who I am and what my goals are. And when you when you have the ability to embrace diversity and understand it from that vantage point, it really becomes a competitive advantage for you and your firm going forward.
0: All right, so we've tackled in about 20 minutes religion. We've solved all the problems there. Uh, (laughs) Done all the stigmas. Okay. We've uh, done a high-level overview of the shifts in media landscape and how we think it's informing, or at least shaping the way that people are learning about money differently than it was, let's say, even 10 years ago. We spoke a little bit about the shifts in household income and diversity. There are so many other ways that we could look at this. We obviously quoted quite a few sources from Pew Research to Independent Studies. We decided to stop there and say, you know what? What tool could we use to help us make sense of all of these things? And it just so happens that we're living in the age of artificial intelligence. You guys were introduced to that, and maybe you're even sick of hearing about it. So I apologize, but we're going to talk about it a little bit more, because I figured, why don't we ask ChatGPT what it thinks, the trends that financial advisors should be paying attention to with respect to families, shifts in values, shifts in beliefs? And I'm going to tell you exactly what ChatGPT said. I said, ask... Give me five things. What do you think is most relevant? First, it said, was the increase in single-parent households. Over the past few decades, there's been a significant increase in the number of single-parent households in the U.S. Financial advisors need to be aware of the unique challenges faced by them, such as balancing work, child care responsibilities, and so on and so on. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with
1: that. I'm more skeptical of artificial intelligence when it comes to things like this, but I agree with that one because I think if you look at the divorce stats, you'll see that the group that is most impacted are women who are over the age of 55. And so these single moms aren't just single moms of infants. They're single moms of tweens and teens, and they will need financial guidance going forward. And they
0: are single moms with means more often than not today. Yes, with means. Absolutely. Teens
1: and tweens and with means.
0: I like that. That (laughs) sounds like a nice t-shirt. Okay. What was the second thing ChatGPT offered? Well, it said changing gender roles. We spoke a little bit about this before, specifically as it relates to breadwinning and some of the trends that we're seeing there. According to ChatGPT, the traditional gender roles within families are changing with more women entering the workforce, sounds eerily familiar, and men taking on caregiving responsibilities your thoughts on that.
1: I agree. (laughs) Look at me agreeing with the AI. Typically, the question of whether you plan to leave the workforce or take time off is reserved for women. But now that we're seeing these huge swings and dads wanting to have a more active role with their children and and take paternity leave or possibly stay at home, that question now needs to be expanded to any parent.
0: Yeah, I think one of the largest untold stories that sits at the intersection of money and our careers right now is actually the conflict that a lot of men are feeling. I believe a lot of men are conflicted. They are torn between their desires and their ambitions. They have these career ambitions. They want to continue to grow, but they also want to be better fathers than their fathers were to them. And oftentimes those two come at a rub, and I think that's contributing to some of the shifts that we're seeing. All right. According to ChatGBT, the third most important thing was aging population. As a population ages, financial advisors need to be prepared to help families navigate the complex financial issues associated with aging. I feel like you guys already know this. I don't know that yeah. that's like a wild, you know, assertion there, but that's certainly something that we've been paying attention to maybe a little bit differently. But how do you feel?
1: Yeah, I think I think it's known but I think one of the things that's still being underestimated is the impact of caretaking on one's financial plans because again caretaking is another role that has been traditionally reserved for women and specifically older women later in life but it's happening earlier and earlier there are minors who are responsible for taking care of an adult in their family and oftentimes although that's an outlier oftentimes the age that you start caretaking intersects with the actual peak earning years of your career. And so that considering that is something that people will need to take into, into mind.
0: Yeah, we spend a lot of time thinking about and worrying about the sandwich generation. I think what's been interesting in the last couple of years, what we've seen is what almost feels like a like a club sandwich generation. <laughs> Layered. Where, you know, a dip. And, and as a millennial I feel a little odd about this because I certainly remember being blamed for the for for lots of things, but uh, there was a moment where we were being slapped for moving back in with our parents. But what we've seen is that actually these days are a lot more parents moving in with their millennial children, right? And so all of these things, I think, are certainly playing a role. All right, what was the fourth thing ChatGBT said? Rising costs of education. Again, I don't think that's a big surprise there. I think we're all aware of the role that student loan debt is playing in the lives of our clients and in families. But what do you have to say?
1: I think on the flip side of acknowledging the rising cost of education is also being empathetic and understanding to handle a parent's reluctance or hesitance to even save for education at this point. A lot of parents are looking for alternative paths, and that's based on the feedback that they're getting from their, from their children, from the student itself.
0: I love it. All right. The last one, shifting cultural values. According to ChatGPT, in the U.S., becoming more diverse and cultural values around family structure and financial management are changing. Again, not a big, uh, you know, aha here. So I think this is kind of affirming. These are a lot of the things that we've sort of stitched together on our own. For the record, I said to ChatGPT, I was like, give me five more. And they gave me five more. So there are several others, but they all touched on a lot of the themes that I think you've already heard while you were here. There was a lot of talk about technology and how that plays a role Uh, And so all of these things I think are good to know. I think it sort of speaks to the fact that these kinds of tools are useful, but they don't really help you sort of answer these specific questions. You still kind of need that good old fashioned human brain to make sense of the world that we're living in today. It's
1: right there in the title. It's artificial, like artificial (laughs) crab. There is a place for it, but occasionally you want the real thing. So don't be afraid to be culturally sensitive. Use the data, but then go find the stories from your client. Go back and, and add that human element because that's ultimately what people are gonna need as robots and artificial intelligence becomes a larger part of our society. They're gonna want that human touch. That's why we're all here. That's why we exist.
0: I love it. And I agree. Thank you so much, guys. We appreciate you for joining us. Thank you for everyone that tuned in online. And for anyone that's listening here, we hope to see you next year.
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Rich and Regular podcast presented by Success. If you like what you heard, head on over to the Apple ratings and review page or the Spotify ratings and review page, because I learned a lot of you listen to this on Spotify and leave us a five star rating and review. We will see you next week with our regular programming.